0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's, time it's, time it's time for Taiwan This Week.
1: Good evening and welcome to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week. And I'm joined today by Southern Taiwan correspondent Michael Smith in Kaohsiung. Hey, thanks for having me. And regular commentator Ross Feingold, who's in Taijong at the moment. Good evening. And we'll be jumping straight in with Health Minister Chen Shih-jong on Wednesday announcing that the Central Epidemic Command Centre currently has no plans to elevate the nationwide Level 2 coronavirus alert, despite a growing cluster of domestic Delta variant infections in New Taipei. There have been calls for the alert to be raised to Level 3, and several experts this week have also been urging the government to increase it to Level 4. However, the Health Minister stressed that the immediate aim is to control the spread of the disease and the Epidemic Command Centre will consider raising the alert if there is a new wave of infections or if the current cluster balloons out of control. Chen is also still urging people to remain vigilant and to stay away from school or work if they develop symptoms and get tested for the coronavirus if necessary. Now the decision not to elevate the coronavirus alert comes as the Epidemic Command Centre this week has been reporting new coronavirus cases linked to a preschool and an apartment complex in New Taipei's Banqiao district. Now the total number of cluster infections in that case, as we're recording the show, stands at 27, and health officials say they're still seeking to determine the exact source of the cluster infection. However, genome sequencing results in 10 of the 27 cases to date in the cluster shows... Well, they've basically been infected with the Delta variant of the coronavirus. And the health minister has said that patients are either symptomatic or have only mild symptoms, and none have so far needed to be treated at hospital-intensive care units. Needless to say, parents in both New Taipei and neighbouring Taipei have been erring on the side of caution. And schools in those two cities are seeing a sharp increase in the number of students taking epidemic prevention leave, amid concern about the cluster infections. Now, according to the New Taipei Education Bureau, Around 4,399 students from elementary to high school level took disease prevention leave on Thursday of this week there, and that was roughly double the number who skipped class on Wednesday. And officials in New Taipei said that figure is just over 1% of the total number of students in the city. While educational authorities in Taipei say some 3,252 students opted to take epidemic prevention leave on Thursday, which also represents some 1% of the total number of students from elementary to high school level there. So Ross, Concern, quite rightly so, about the Delta variant. We've yet to know how it actually started, and well, basically how it all began. But of course, it's it started. It's gone to schools. It started in a preschool. It's now gone to several elementary schools and an apartment block in Banzhou District.
2: Well, you got to give the authorities credit for the ability to compile data. You were able to give us the. To- the data, the number of students taking leave from class, or skipping class, as you called it, within the past few days, they're able to produce this data, so that very quickly gives us somewhat of a snapshot of the concerns of parents, and you were able to give us the data on the cluster and the genomic testing. So the authorities, they're on top of it. They seem to know what's going on on uh, and they also seem in their judgment uh, to have determined that it's not necessary to elevate to back to a, a national level three like it was a couple of months ago uh, or let alone a level four as some experts uh, have recommended I, I think it's uh, the right decision to keep it at level two look uh, the concerns about Delta 2 are, are leg, uh, the Delta are legitimate but but on the other hand the, the number of cases are we have to really not overreact and say that the number of cases, are, are, are still relatively small. And, and uh, I think, at least at this point, the authorities are taking a, a, a balanced approach and the right approach.
1: And of course, Michael, you have children of school age. Yeah, um down here in the south
0: uh, at least in Kaohsiung, we we aren't seeing uh, the same sort of, you know, man on the street comments that uh, you're getting from people in Banqiao. I was watching the news earlier and there were uh, parents, you know, saying that they would like to see Banqiao or New Taipei or Taipei locked down and, you know, it's it's easy to understand as Ross noted their concerns. It's uh, you know, if you're in that area. We're not uh feeling that same level of fear. Uh we haven't really heard many in the south uh, hoping for a, a return to to level 3. The mayor on Tuesday did uh, set out some very clear guidelines for uh, the upcoming Moon Festival uh, barbecuing season, as it's come to be, um, and hopefully people will uh, follow those. Uh, pretty much, basically, you're just going to have to give up uh, your your traditional, you know, Moon Festival barbecue and, and sacrifice. But even more importantly than not having cow row is, uh, we're really hoping that people. Just decide not to do the travel between Taipei and Kaohsiung or other places for this holiday festival, if. You know, it's it, it's hard to, to not see your family, but it's also worse to to take what could be, as Ross said, a, a seemingly con- contained Delta uh, cluster here and and have it spread. So there's that. There's also um, a lot of conversation related to the origins of these uh, clusters. So we had the one with the the pilots, right, uh, with the EVA pilots. Uh, uh, one pilot in particular was uh, fired and fined, but uh, there have been calls for criminal penalties for. For people in this sort of situation. It seems that the cluster related to him uh, is, is possibly even not not a cluster. Like, there may not be much at all. In fact, we might have gotten lucky. The second uh, one is, is that right now they're talking about it being from uh, possibly from uh, some people who came in from Egypt, but those people followed all the quarantine rules, and there's no there's no anger directed at them. But with people such as the pilot who deliberately disregard rules that they, they know is very clear, like why are they only being fired and fined? This is uh, I don't know I don't, I'm not a lawyer, but attempted negligent homicide or something you could you could argue. So uh, there's that, and then finally, um, ping dong far south of Taiwan, they are sending, uh, they actually have sent a representative down to the Asia-Pacific City Summit, which is going on in Brisbane right now, to discuss how they tackled the uh, Delta variant back in uh, late July. So uh, that's uh, one little success story from southern Taiwan. However, you certainly can't extrapolate uh, southern Taiwan's uh, story to uh, a major metropolitan area like Chao.
1: And, Of course, Ross, you are a lawyer. So, stiffer penalties for people that basically deliberately, knowingly violate their quarantine regulations. Well,
2: Michael just said a uh, barbecue and sacrifice. I wasn't sure if he was <laughs> what kind of sacrifice he was referring to. Like we should sacrifice the people who uh, violate the quarantine rules, or he no. meant it's a great it's a great sacrifice not to have a barbecue. Uh, there was a quote from the mayor of. Uh, High saying like, "Oh, if you have to barbecue, like, do it in your doorway. Don't do it outside." I guess he, he thought that would avoid uh, people passing by on on the street. Uh, but uh, you know, the, there are penalties; that need to be enforced. But uh, I, I don't see the criminal justice system uh, being being used as a way to impose. Uh, you know, uh, new novel interpretations of attempted murder uh uh, uh legislation or, or the parts of the criminal code. Uh again, they, you know, the fines for for violating um you know the epidemic laws are, are in place. Uh, again, I I think uh these things are generally enforced. We should be fair to the authorities they, on this issue. I mean they do generally catch people who have been violating the quarantine rules. That's because of the systems that have been well-developed and have been utilized now for 18 months uh, or or a little bit longer. And, uh, you know, whether it's the police knocking on the door, the local Lijong who knows that somebody in in, in their neighborhood uh, returned from overseas, this was quarantine, or now with the hotels, uh, mandatory quarantine hotels, I think the system generally works, and that's why we, we do hear about in the news the, the, the few cases where, where people do violate the rules.
1: What about civil suits against people that violate the rules? I mean, if, if a family member of yours was infected by the coronavirus by someone who knowingly violated the rules, could there be a mandate for this person to sue the other person?
2: it's an interesting suggestion, but as soon as you asked that, you know, I think you a lawyer, I was thinking about what the defenses would be. Uh, there'd probably be a number of potential ones. Like, you know, you'd basically start off by blaming everyone else. You know, like, well, I got tested. It's not my fault. I didn't know. You know, uh, I had a negative test. Uh, so uh, I think that one would be pretty tough to, to win
0: as well in Taiwan.
1: And of course, Michael, there was the case in Kaohsiung where the nurse tried to sue the man that infected her.
0: Right. And uh, the, the city government was um, going to let that uh, go through, apparently, until the man died. And uh, so the case was vacated. So, yeah, we haven't uh, actually tested the idea of, uh, of a lawsuit yet that I'm aware of.
1: And in related news, the results of a survey released this week by the National Suicide Prevention Centre and the Taiwanese Society of Suicidology show that nearly half of the respondents to that survey reported experiencing stress due to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, the survey apparently asked 2,219 respondents aged 15 and over what the pandemic has affected them emotionally. And the results found that 45.4% of them said that they have felt stress over the past month. Now, a total of 30.8% of respondents said they were under financial pressure Due to the coronavirus outbreak, what 29.8% of the respondents said they feel stress in daily life as a result of the pandemic. So, Ross, have you been feeling stress and emotionally sort of unstable?
2: Uh, well, emotionally unstable, I think the greatest source of that is is coming on your show, Gavin. You know, the stress that, that it causes me to talk about these issues. Uh, but but it's not a surprise that, that people in Taiwan, just like elsewhere. Uh, do feel some pressure. Uh you know, There are people who've lost their jobs or have had reduced work hours, for example, during during the level three, which I think, again, is why the authorities are being extremely uh cautious about reimposing that, let alone imposing a level four, which would be even more disruptive to people's jobs and, and the, the personal finances and uh, just cause a lot of worry and stress uh, as well uh, but but again yeah, i I think we have to trust in our our leaders and and the elected leadership, uh, both at the local levels and the central government levels uh, If I could uh, say something critical though you know we see the daily press conferences by by the central government and the local governments. Uh, and and you know, they present some statistics, answer some questions. Sometimes they say the questions are are stupid, and they you know they have some back and forth with the reporters. But maybe maybe something that's missing is is a, a dose of optimism. Uh, so instead of just dryly presenting the statistics or, or uh, telling us uh, how many uh, vaccine donations came in today from some countries in Central or Eastern Europe, uh, maybe they should give us some optimism as well and, and explain uh, the issues. In a more positive way
0: I uh, I, I really like what Ross said just there And uh, not only that um, uh, the, the, As he noted The stress really is real There are people who like for almost four months Have seen their, their salaries reduced From almost to, to some people to zero It's it's really quite bad The the school that my daughter attends uh, There's been definitely a rise uh, In uh, suicide attempts And sadly even one successful one I can't necessarily link that to the to The um, uh, the outbreak, but uh, yeah, there's certainly a, a lot of stress. And I wish that when the mayor or the authorities came on, not only maybe some good news, but also a bit more of a sympathetic tone. I know it's not going to change anything, but if they were able to say more than just, you know, da but be able to say things like, now we know that people in the industry of the restaurant industry or the bushiban industry are really hurting right now, and just lay these things out more in a, um, a sympathetic human kind of way. I I think it would help more than just, you know, uh, slogans of Taiwan pull together and let's, let's all get through this. Because um, just hearing from a leader that they, they recognize the position that you're in and how difficult things are is it, going to be helpful in some way.
1: And moving away from the coronavirus now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Monday of this week said that it's closely monitoring the situation in Honduras after one of the candidates in that country's November 28th presidential election pledged to recognise Beijing if he's elected. Now, according to Ministry spokeswoman Joanne O, oh, Taiwan's embassy in Honduras is seeking to step up interactions and communications with people from all political sides there in an attempt to preempt any possible severance of diplomatic relations. Oh went on to say that Beijing will do everything possible to poach diplomatic partners from Taiwan but she went on to say its promises to win them over are often colossal but empty now the statements come after presidential candidate Xiomar Castro of the opposition Liberty and Re-Foundation Party vowed to open diplomatic relations with China if he's elected now also this week DPP lawmakers Chou Jirui and Shu Jijie called on the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to establish a task force to review standardising the names of Taiwan's overseas representative offices now according to the lawmakers the government should be seeking to use the title Taiwan for all of the offices overseas and speaking to reporters Cho said that the office's use of the title Taipei fails to stress the island's status as independent and sovereign country and its wishes for increased international recognition. Cho also said that there's currently wide international support for Taiwan and the foreign ministry should seek to monopolise on that to promote the name change at all of the representative offices and the lawmaker went on to say that changing the titles of the Taiwan offices in the US and Japan should be given priority now the foreign ministry of course heard that and it said while it acknowledges the efforts of the dpp lawmakers to rename the offices it also pointed out that well renaming taiwan's representative offices overseas can only be done with the host country's approval so michael i mean honduras possibly could switch to beijing Right.
0: So, uh, at least from my uh, reporting area down here in southern Taiwan, the only direct uh, issue that that might uh, affect would be the number of uh, students that attend San uh, Yasen University from Honduras, which is not a very large amount in in, in the first place. Um, we we know that the KMT will lo- use this, if it does happen, as a line of attack against the DPP and the Thai, Thai administration, but it does seem to be losing much of its power, the idea of uh, people switching to China. Uh, there's been, what, uh, seven since 2016 that have moved over, leaving us with 15 currently. Um, and it appears that it's, it's quite uh, clear we, we've got to get used to the idea that any country that's sticking with Taiwan is doing so for reasons other than... Uh, just loyalty to Taiwan they have their own national interests uh, for the most part in in, in mind and uh, trade offices that we have uh, no matter how they're named are probably reasonably effective and they're definitely cheaper than embassies so of the 15 allies that we have uh, Honduras is what 9.5 million people that's well, quite a bit bigger than some of the other ones uh, Palau you've got only 18,000 people there East swanti 1.1 million So, um, in general, I don't think there's a lot of uh, worry on the street about whether or not uh, Honduras switches over. And finally, on the issue itself, Reuters was reporting that the main reason for this uh, possible switch is because of a vaccine issue and uh, Honduras uh, hoping to get vaccines from China. The diplomat just came out with a a very clear report that uh, shows that all those seven who switched since 2016 have not fared any better um, in the vaccine race than uh, Taiwan's allies have. Taiwan's allies have gotten uh, donations from India, from various other places, and uh, China has not sold the ones who switched any significant numbers. So the argument that Taiwan's making that switching over to China is possibly uh, mainly false promises does have some statistical backing, at least from from what I can see.
2: Well, The other side of that is uh, what what, uh, the the president of Kiribati said in 2019 when they de-recognized Taiwan at the same time. Uh, Solomon Islands, which was basically something along the lines of, uh, well, we've had diplomatic relations and received Taiwan's aid for a number of years, but you know our, our own domestic situation, whether economically or otherwise, uh, hasn't really improved either. So we'll take our chances with with China. So. Uh, I, I, it's inevitable some more countries are going to switch. Probably the, the only reason why hasn't occurred in the last couple of years, there hasn't been one in, in the last couple of years, uh, is the pandemic. Because you know China wants the big, the big media event where the foreign minister, or the prime minister, or president of the country that makes the switch comes to Beijing and, and shakes hands with China's leaders and signs, signs a communique saying that there's only one China and Taiwan is a part of it. Uh, but this is. Inevitable. Whether it's Honduras, Nicaragua, uh, or some of the other c- countries that are often named as, as the next candidate, uh, uh, the you know, life will go on here. Uh, the, the most important relationships are still with the United States, Japan, uh, Australia, Canada, a few countries in Western Europe. Uh, it's, it's not with Honduras or Nicaragua, uh, Guatemala, or the, the other few remaining countries. So uh, we just have to deal with with the realities.
1: And what about the DPP lawmakers calling for the office name changes? That that sounds like a disaster waiting to happen if they actually push through with it.
2: Uh, yeah, as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said, it's it, it's up to the, the host countries. is it, 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 a bit similar to what we were talking about with messaging uh, from government officials about uh, the pandemic. Uh, maybe it would be good if the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, instead of just saying that it's up to the host countries, they would say we don't support this it 's a waste of time because we know a lot of the countries are just not going to agree to this. Uh, certainly, the United States would be very sympathetic uh, had the Trump administration won a second term it's it's possible uh, they would have looked at this uh, the Biden administration is probably less likely to do so than you know, as you go down the list from there, whether it 's Japan or uh, countries in Western Europe, uh, the, the likelihood of additional countries doing this is 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 minimal, and then uh, here in, in East Asia, countries in Southeast Asia, uh, absolutely no chance.
1: And moving to domestic news rather than international news, Shinzu County Magistrate Yang Wengke this week told reporters as he invited Shinzu City Mayor Lin Zhijian and lawmakers from both the county and the city to talk about merging their constituencies to create a greater Shinzu Special Municipality. Yang is arguing that the two areas contribute some 200 billion NT per year combined in tax revenue to the central government, but get very little out of that total amount back in funding. And Yang says the creation of what will be Taiwan's seventh Special Municipality Municipality will increase the funding and improve the quality of life for all of the city and county residents. The cabinet, though, this week said it has no opinion about such a merger. About if such a merger were to take place, of course, it would require passage of a long-stalled administrative zoning bill, which was submitted to the legislator by the cabinet in 2018. Now, figures show that Shinzu City has a population of 452,781, while Shinzu County's population stands at around 573,858. Now, came K- AMT lawmaker Lin Wei Zhou appears to have got somewhat over-enthused by Young's proposal, and he's now suggesting that Miaoli County be included in the Greater Shinzu Special Municipality, which he said would boost the combined area's population to 1.5 million. Now, currently, populations need to be greater than 1.25 million to actually form a special municipality, hence the need for lawmakers to first pass the long-stalled administrative zoning bill. So, of course, Michael, you're in a city which was a county and a city before, but is now a special municipality. I mean, do you see the Shinzu one going ahead, or do you see some problems possibly in the future there?
0: Um, my, my personal opinion would be that it's probably a good idea at some point. Um, even with the Miaoli added to it, it could be uh, a viable idea. Uh, the idea of consolidating things does definitely... Save money, and uh, like Pingdong uh, just the other day reduced the number of villages or Li uh, in their uh, city from 79 down to something in the '50s, and that's going to save them 20 million NT per year. Um, but there are some things that we can learn from the Gaohong experience, and one of those things would be to possibly be a bit more flexible with borders. So, when Kaohsiung County and Kaohsiung City merged, that included the very rural districts of uh, Maolin and Namasha and uh, Taoyuan and places like this that are. Uh, very far up in the mountains, a good 1,000-plus meters above sea level, and have a very different way of life than uh, things that are closer to Kaohsiung uh, City proper. And um, when I've gone up there to talk to some of the uh, uh, district now district chiefs, uh, they've told me that they would have preferred to be given to Pingdong because Pingdong is more of a rural county and has more experience with dealing with these mountainous areas and they feel like it's it's uh, difficult for Gaosheng city to understand their their culture their way of doing things however Pingdong county doesn't have any money so, if that were to have happened, the bridges that are being built there right now, all brand new all the infrastructure, even though it, they were washed out during the last uh, uh bit of rains, there's still another bridge being put in it will be finished very very soon, so that probably wouldn't have happened so um, some flexibility could have been a good idea. Back when the merger happened, perhaps Pingdong City should have been attached to Kaohsiung, and it could have been Pingdong, the, the, the city area, because people commute between the two. But it was very rigid. It was just the borders that we have right now and then the borders that they have right now combined. But had they been redrawn with perhaps more of a, a thought of exactly who's living here and how they would benefit, that that that, that might have been helpful. So that could be something that uh, Shinzu uh, could consider.
1: So Ross, a merger between Shinzu County, Shinzu City, and possibly Miaoli.
2: Well, first I just have to say how much I love Michael's. Exclave concept. It sounds so European, because there's there's a few places in Europe where, where a, a village or a town is on the wrong side of a border that actually belong to a different country, even though they're surrounded by the territory of, of, of the neighboring country. Uh, so that, I think that's, that's a pretty interesting idea for Taiwan, unfortunately, uh, probably unlikely to ever uh, be implemented. Uh, look, uh, we have to be frank about a few things. The reason why uh, politicians are talking about this now is because we're getting close to the local elections uh, in November 2022. So it's it, it's just great to say, uh, uh, if you elect us, we'll do this. It doesn't mean they're actually going to do it, but it, it's a way to say that the other people r- running for the other side, they don't care about you because they, they don't have a great idea like we have for a merger uh, and to deliver you more benefits, more, uh, you know, more uh, return on your tax dollars you know, given the, the data points that you cited earlier, Gavin. Uh, so part of this is just simply about electoral politics. I, I could deliver you something better, so vote for me. Uh, the other frank thing to to mention is this will happen if one person says She supports it, and that's President Tsai. And if President Tsai uh, thinks this is a good idea, whether politically or or actually for the people who live in these jurisdictions, then she should just come out and say so. And you know what will happen if she says so? The central government will move whatever it needs to do, uh, and the legislature will move whatever it needs to do, including the legislation that that was mentioned earlier, uh, and it will become reality. But if President Tsai doesn't support this, uh, then uh, we're just wasting our time talking about it.
0: Yeah, a quick comment on what Ross is saying about the, the politicians. That is uh, immediately what was fired back by uh, the opposition, that uh, the, the mayor is simply hoping that he would get a, a, another term or perhaps run for the greater uh, Shinsu, uh, uh position. And it, it is a, a something that, that's worth uh, thinking about because uh, when they merged in Kaohsiung, for example, the mayor was able to uh, take a, another term. So that meant we had 12 years of uh, leadership under tanju, and not that uh, it was a, a, a bad thing necessarily, but it did get a little long in the tooth towards the end there, and uh, she was recalled. Uh, she called up to Taipei to, to do something else in a deputy mayor, and uh, it, it for many people it. it The the lame duckness of those last couple of years was just a bit too long, so it is worth thinking about.
1: And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. (laughs) Welcome back to Taiwan this week. Now the four candidates seeking the KMT leadership participated in their televised policy presentation this past weekend. The election, of course, is stated to be held on September the 25th, and it pits incumbent chairman Johnny Jung against former New Taipei City Mayor Eric Ju, former Jianghua County Commissioner Zhu Boyuan, and Sun Yat-sen School President Zhang Ya Jong. Now the candidates voiced their respective ideas during the presentation, but it was their approaches to how the party under their leadership will seek to tackle the China question that had all the pundits talking. Now, briefly, I'm going to say this very briefly because I'm going to explain what they say and it's going to be very brief. Now, Johnny Jung said that he'll seek to resume cross-strait dialogue and exchanges and to work on building mutual trust between the two sides. And he also touted his plans to establish a commission to promote cross-strait peace and to hold a national forum on future ties with Beijing if he's re-elected. Eric Zhu spoke of his plans to establish a channel with China to promote social exchanges and focus less on politics. And he also stressed that his belief that the KMT is defending the Republic of China and its love for Taiwan. Now, Joe Boy Yuan said that if elected, he will lead the KMT to inviting Chinese president Xi Jinping to visit Taiwan, while Jung Ya-jong poured cold water on the proposals by johnny jung and eric jew and said that he's elected kmt chairman who work towards seeking dialogue with beijing and the eventual signing of a cross-straight peace treaty now polls taken after the policy presentation showed that jung came out on top so ross he came out clearly on top so why was that
2: well he, he had something to say and he, uh, he said it emphatically so uh, if people haven't had a chance to watch it yet i'd encourage them to do so simply because uh, you you saw how how distinctive he was, um, not just in speaking style, but that was really, really important, you know, compared to the other three gentlemen on the stage. It was a great contrast. But but also, uh, he he was very different in in his position. So he's, uh, uh, frankly, more unificationist than the other three gentlemen on the the stage. Uh, So maybe you could say it's not that mainstream Gomindang position to sign a peace treaty. I... uh, Mr. Zhu and Mr. Jiang were not uh, advocating for that. Uh, but, but Zhang Ya Jong uh, you know, he's been uh, a public figure for several years and he's taken these positions. He tried uh, his chances in the Kuomintang presidential uh, primary back in 2019. Uh, so his, his positions are fairly clear. He doesn't try to hide them. Uh, you know, a lot of people in Taiwan, In 2021, might not like those positions anymore, but at least he has a really clear position. It it seemed like Mr. Zhang and Mr. Zhu uh, were reiterating things that the the Gomining has basically done in the recent past. When when Johnny Zhang took over as chairman uh, last March, uh, March of 2020, uh, he did have a commission to look into. not just internal operations at the Dong, but perhaps most importantly, what their policies uh, towards China would be. And they basically concluded at, at the end of this exercise, they were going to uh, adhere to uh, the 1992 consensus. So basically there wasn't much of a policy change. Uh, so again, uh, uh, Mr. John just offered something, Zhang Zhong offered something that was distinctive, and, and it was reflected in the online polling, although not scientific. Uh, but but he, he didn't just have a lead, he had a commanding lead uh, as far as... Uh, you know, support level or how he did versus
0: the other candidates.
1: So, Michael, I mean, ideas, but nothing ground-shaking.
0: Yeah, Ross nailed it. I mean, uh, the, tell us what you stand for. And as I've, I've spoken to many, many people in, in southern Taiwan who have told me very clearly that uh, if the KMT is pro-unification, then say it. Um, it's a perfectly valid political position. You, you are welcome to be pro-unification and make your case for it, make the argument for it. Or if you want a peace treaty, make the argument for it. Even if the 1992 consensus doesn't appear to be a consensus currently in Taiwan, so if that's going to be your shtick, then, then sell it, honestly, you know? tell the people sure maybe this is a made-up idea but it's a formula that's going to work and explain how you think that's going to be whether or not that's going to get you elected is a completely different uh... uh... question uh... we know that one china two systems is a ninety percent hard no for taiwanese people at this point We're watching Hong Kong, and we also have evidence that uh, maybe you could call them Beijing-friendly administrations, from the Ma administration to Hangzhou down here in Kaohsiung, hasn't trickled down very far to uh, to the local people. So <laughs> I wouldn't want to be the KMT right now uh, with uh, in its electoral position. But yeah, um, tell us what you stand for and make a, a decent argument for it, and let's see what what people think about it.
2: Uh, the interesting thing here is uh, where do they go from here? Right? Someone, mm-hmm. Someone's going to win uh, the chairman election at the end of this month, and then they have to follow up on this aspect of what they discussed. Uh, assuming it's Mr. Jong or Mr. Ju, as you know, most people think one of them is going to win. They still don't think Mr. Jong is going to win, notwithstanding his, his better performance. Last weekend, they are going to have to put uh, this into words. So, whether it's forming a commission uh, or if Mr. Chu wins, uh, encouraging social interactions. uh, And to go to Michael's point, are, are even what they are talking about saleable? to the the public or voters in Taiwan is also uh, a big question mark, right? So let's say Mr. Zhu wins. uh, Is he really going to be advocating uh, for more uh, kind of people-to-people interaction across different sectors of society? For example, he's emphasized a lot uh, what he wants to do for younger people. Is he going to be saying younger people go visit China uh go, go on a delegation to china uh so uh once we move past the the election you know how, how is the winner going to implement well, what he spoke about last week and that's something we should be
1: watching and of course now we have to look ahead to 2024 and ross quickly if the kmt wins in 24 2024 do you see them inviting china's head of state to come to taiwan well,
2: they can invite whoever they want. You know, uh, we're, we're always hearing that so and so is being invited to Taiwan. They they actually uh, usually don't really come here, uh, whether it's uh, the Pope or the President of the United States or uh, Xi Jinping or anyone else. Uh, but uh, interesting that you mention that, simply because whoever wins the Guomindang chairman election has to get through the 2022 uh, local election first. And the usual pattern is if they don't do well, if the Guomindang doesn't do well in the 2022 local election, then we would expect the chairman uh, to resign. Uh, So whoever wins this uh, election at the end of the month, if they don't do well, uh, they might only have the job for 13, 14 months.
1: And the Transitional Justice Commission on Wednesday of this week announced the outline of its plan for the transformation of the National Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall in Taipei. Acting Commission Chairwoman Ye Hong-ling told reporters that the aim of the plan is to turn the site into a public park, with reflections on Taiwan's authoritarian history and its main theme. The plan includes a proposal, though, to remove the bronze statue of Chiang Kai-shek from the main building, which will then go under renovations. And Ye says the aim of those renovations is to eliminate authoritarian elements in the structure of the hall now according to the transformation bill all authoritarian symbols in the park will be removed and the venue will be basically returned to the public so they can commemorate there now a draft planning bill regarding the transformation will be formally drafted later this year and a more detailed bill is expected to be announced in the first half of next year with the Commission saying that it plans to gather views from the public. Needless to say the plans have already been slammed by the KMT, with KMT Chairman Johnny Jung comparing the Commission's decision to remove the statue of Chiang Kai-shek to the Taliban. And Jung this week said the DPP government is removing the statue solely for partisan reasons and he went on to say they're no different from the Afghan Islamist Religious Political and Military Organisation because they take hair down what they don't like. Needless to say, the DPP is dismissing Jung's analogy. So, Michael, I mean, they've come up with a plan. This is not the first plan. They've been talking about this for a long time, and of course, the statue of Jung was always going to be the rather controversial move there.
0: Right, it certainly wasn't controversial uh, when it was removed uh, from the former Chiang Kai-shek Hall in Gaoshan, which is now the Wenhua Zhongjing, or Cultural Centre. That, uh, that was uh, not a problem with people down here. It's interesting how many authors and uh, commentators have noted that Taiwan moved from being an authoritarian state to being a democracy without having kind of what you might call like a moment of triumph for, you know, that Berlin Wall or a violent revolution or the toppling of the Saddam Hussein statue or whatever you want to, however you want to put it, it just sort of slowly evolved into this and that leaves us in a sort of unique position when it comes to uh, things like this so the building itself in Taipei is a is is a treasure it's you know quite quite beautiful and um, it's uh, I certainly wouldn't support tearing down that that uh, edifice but the statue itself in there um, does give the impression that this is a person who is to be revered and uh, that's slowly I believe becoming not the default position by many, many people in Taiwan. So changing it into a museum, possibly, that discusses the life of Chiang Kai-shek and the history of totalitarianism would be interesting. I heard uh, the DPP uh, say that they agreed with the KMT that uh, one idea could be to make it a, an anti-communism park, uh, which would be a, a funny idea. And, but uh, it, it does seem that uh, the the mood of the people has shifted quite a bit since the last time that this was a major issue during the Chinese Arabian administration, where, you know, the, he only got to change the, the square without uh, a huge hoopla. So, the winds are changing, I think.
2: <laughs> well, these winds blow at a very low speed. As Gavin mentioned, uh, this has been discussed before. Michael, you alluded to Chen Shui-bian's aborted efforts. Uh, So we've been hearing this from 2000, 2008. We we heard about it from the DPP when they're in opposition. They've been in power since 2016. They're getting around to it now. Guess what? It is like the other issues we've been discussing. It's because the local election's upcoming, so you start citing this. And why? Well, because because a, a descendant of of Jiang, might be running for mayor for the Gourmet Dog. So uh, it's a perfect timing. So yeah, I'm a bit cynical about why about the timing. They could have done this. Uh, Let's say uh, I don't know the summer of 2016, right after uh, they took office. So I think using it for political purposes does make uh, people cynical, and it, it might be why they, people aren't really emotional about this. Yeah, of course, there are people who detest uh, the Guomintang uh, dictatorship and detest Chiang Kai-shek and and Jiang Jingguo uh, But but I, I think uh, you know to go back to. To the, the historical citations uh, Michael made, I, I, we just—I don't see it. Right? I don't see people like saying, "Like, give me the dynamite. I want to. I'll go down there and blow it up myself." Because uh, again, I think people see that this is being done in, in part for political purposes uh, as much as it's being done to to right historical wrongs.
0: Uh, <laughs> would, but, but would we both agree that the comparison to the Taliban is uh, pretty pretty uh, ridiculous?
2: I, I think it's a little distant from people in Taiwan. I mean, I guess Jiang was referring to the the, the, the Taliban blowing up the, the Banyan statues in, in the 1990s. Uh, I think the public, a lot of people in the public here just didn't really know what he was talking about. That's <laughs> possible, yes.
1: Anyway, before we go this week, Overseas Community Affairs Council Minister Tong Junyuan has inaugurated a branch of the Taiwan Centre for Mandarin Learning in Irvine, California. The centre will provide Chinese language courses to adults there. And Tong says the centre aims to provide a language learning environment that values freedom and democracy, while respecting cultural diversity. Now, the opening of the centre comes as local politicians and pundits here have long been pushing the Thai administration to work to replace China's Confucius Institute branches on American university campuses as they're being closed due to national security concerns. So, Ross, the Taiwan Center for Mandarin Learning in Irvine, California, could the Taiwan Center for Mandarin Learning overtake the China Confucius Institutes when they're all banned, if they're all banned, from American campuses?
2: I recently published a commentary about this, so my my, my position on this is quite clear. I I don't think this is a great idea for for Taiwan to pursue. Uh, it, It creates... Uh, the notion of, for a lot of people who, who aren't really familiar with the details of the history or, or the relationship or the potential future of the relationship that, uh, if but for this kind of if, if but for uh, the current political system in China, uh, Taiwan would be part of, of China and where we have the shared language, it, 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 it takes people away from thinking of Taiwan as as a separate place. And if people want, if people here want the world to think of Taiwan as a separate place, uh, saying well. We'll teach the same language as in China and we'll replace the Chinese uh, government-funded learning institutions to do that. Uh, I don't think it's good for creating a separate uh, Taiwan identity. Uh, Also, it's just not the strength of the Taiwan government uh, to to run this kind of operation overseas. Historically, uh, there's been schools for children of Taiwan expatriates, uh, but uh, this, this is as much a strategic move Uh, or a marketing move for Taiwan, I don't think this is the strength of of, uh, the OCAC or even the Waijiao Ministry of Foreign Affairs, to be involved in in something uh, like this. Uh, And uh, the last point I'd make is there are plenty of American citizens uh, who are native speakers of Mandarin who could be teaching Mandarin. So as an American, I'm not a big fan of uh, uh, sending foreign teachers from Taiwan to the United States to teach
0: Mandarin. Yeah, I hear Ross's points, and, uh, you know, I, I see a, a problem. So the, the State Department has uh, picked Chinese as one of eight languages that are vital to U.S. national security. So if uh, Taiwan were to begin teaching Chinese, uh, the majority of Chinese in the world uses simplified characters, for example, so uh, that 's something we don 't use here however i 'm um, not completely on board with ross 's concept of the separation because whether that 's how we want to view ourselves or you want people to view us, the reality is we do speak Chinese on this island, and we do have a Chinese culture uh, here that in some ways you could argue is uh perhaps even purer than the Chinese culture that uh, was allowed to continue to exist under the communist regime. So there is Chinese here. Also, um, we have been teaching Chinese uh, missionaries, uh, various other people for a very long time. And, I'd rather have the government spend money on this than on the tourism campaign that they do for promoting beef noodles. Uh, At least this gives the idea to the world that Taiwan has intelligent things to offer. Also, perhaps it would get more uh, students to come over and study in Taiwan. These students might end up staying and and, uh, contributing to the economy or So I'm not uh, as completely convinced as Ross is that this is a totally bad idea.
2: Well, I'll
0: I'll I'll respond to one thing that Michael mentioned, which
2: is students who come here. So first of all, this is about teaching people in the U.S., so... Uh, That's where the resources are going to go. But but on a resources issue, uh, yes, there's been tens of thousands of foreigners who've come uh, to Taiwan to learn Mandarin uh, over the past 60 years or so. And uh, I will say what I've said previously um, publicly. Government, if you're listening to our show today, you have completely ignored... This resource, right? There are alumni of, of Mandarin language schools in Taiwan who have gone on to live in Taiwan or, or have gone on to work worldwide, some in government, some in industry. And the Taiwan government has repeatedly failed to make use of this very valuable resource of, of foreigners uh, who, who have a genuine connection already to Taiwan. So instead, we're going to start throwing around resources to sort of build new connections with Taiwan when there's already an existing pool of people that has been completely ignored.
1: And on that point, we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined today by Michael Smith in Kaohsiung. Again, thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold, who's currently in Taichung.
2: Have a great weekend.
1: And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app, where you can get access to all our previous shows. Mm